this piece now you're you're late on it like everything right yeah yeah i'm a month late and you're a month late i'm a month late how do you get away with uh being a month late yeah yeah i've never even dared to i've been a week late and then i and then i was like oh i'm so sorry and in my head i'm like they're never gonna work with me again i was a week late yeah how do you get away with being a month late? I don't know. I mean, um, how do I get away with it? I don't know. And I don't actually don't know that I am getting away with it. But I, the performance at this point is going to suffer a little bit, I feel like. But I just kind of overbooked myself this year. And so I wrote, there were three orchestra things I had to write before this. Holy shit. Is that all you do is orchestra? No, I write some chamber music too. And I want to write more because it's more fun and it's less work. It seems to be that orchestras have the money to commission, so they're the ones who I work for. Take me through the orchestral projects that you have. Like, tell me what they're about and, like, uh, how like long the ones they that I to did be. this year or in the future? This is another thing we're going to talk about is your kind of ridiculous career that you've, you it's know. Not a, it's not a ridiculous career, I feel like, because I've never... Um, I'm not like a, a famous composer. Like there, I feel like young composers who have who are, have way more of a name than I do, but... Or at least a brand, but but I've been kind of like plugging along, I feel like. What do you mean brand? I mean like, I feel like there's some, it's very important these days for young composers to be like, sum up their creative output in a sentence or less that you can feed to the press, then can feed to the public. And it's very, you know, it's all about defining yourself very quickly. And you mean very quickly from the onset, I'm this guy. Well, I mean, I mean, if your goal is have a presence in the world and sort of, be famous or be known it certainly does help if you can sort of sell a very concise narrative for yourself like uh i'm andrew norman and i write this kind of music but you are andrew norman and you do write a certain kind of music yeah but i've never been able to like say what that is even i've also always felt like kind of uncomfortable <laughs> with my own voice and so like why would you want to like i've always put a priority on just trying to be okay with what i write and not try to sell what i write like, I've always felt like there, there may come a time when I can summarize, like, this is what I'm about. But right now, I, I feel like it's the time for me to be trying things and pushing myself and not necessarily worrying about, you know, like, building, I would say, a, a press presence, really. Like, Are these all things you've heard from publicists? Like, these keyword, like, press presence and everything like press that? Press presence is actually a thing. But, uh, is, you know, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I will say, like, Moving to New York is kind of shocking because, well, it's been wonderful in so many ways, but the thing I don't like about this city is that you have to have, there's a, it seems a kind of new development in our field where you have to have like a publicist to do anything. Everybody I've talked to so far uh -huh. in New York has mentioned, it's so weird you have to have a publicist now. You so have to have a publicist. Strange. You do. And it's very, it's, I mean, no one, no, no one in Berlin who I've talked to have said that they've said you need to have a publisher, yeah, which is what you do have. Yeah. And then they do the promotion. But the idea of a publicist yeah. is, I don't think as popular, like maybe the Arditi Quartet has like a publicist or at least like a company that yeah. handles his publicity. But those are big, big names. Yeah. Yeah. Big those are big, groups. big names. And, and these, these, these are like, we want to put a show on. At a little tiny venue in Brooklyn, so we get a publicist who like we pay, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars so that we can get our thing listed in Time Out New York, and we can, and they, it's like a, New York especially is a very there's this little closed circle of feedback between composers and publicists and reviewers and 
and they're all on Facebook and Twitter sort of yeah. patting each other's backs. Yeah. And it's a shame that we can't open up that circle a little bit so some people can come in, you know? There, I mean, the, 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 part, the party that you had last night, your birthday party, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was all composers. It was all composers, and then a couple of, and I think a couple of violas that play like new music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of sad about that because actually I do have some artist friends and some author friends. They all just decided not to show up. If those people can't take something away, you're right. Yeah. Why are we doing it? When composers approach other people's work, it's like you kind of almost have to approach it through the filter of your own work as a method of like almost self-preservation in a way, like. It's very, very difficult for composers to appreciate work that was made in an entirely different framework from their own, entirely different value system. I feel like it's, it's, it's hard. It's, a, it's an ongoing process for me of trying to sort of open up my ears and be able to, yeah, to be able to step outside of my own values in order to judge other work or to just experience it. But in order to like step outside of my values, I actually needed to sort of articulate what those were, which was like a very long process for me to try to figure out what actually my work was about, what are the musical things that I find most interesting. And like when I have that, those sort of issues more set or just like able to articulate even at this particular moment what those are, then I'm much more able to appreciate anything that comes my way. Maybe that's true. Maybe you have to know yourself a little bit. Yeah. Maybe you have to know yourself a little bit more in order to, you know, in order to not feel threatened yeah. by something that is so completely foreign. I mean, I, I went through a long period in my life in my 20s when I was pretty much devastated by every single concert I went to, mostly contemporary music, but really anything. Like, anytime I listened to music, I would just freak out because I'd be like, how does this relate to me? And what am I doing? And is this what I should be doing? And like, cause I had no idea what I was doing and, and every, everything would just freak me out. So that's, I, I kind of shut down and kind of closed my ears off for a long time. And it's, it's been hard to say what's the cause and what's the effect. But right now I feel very much more healthy in terms of both knowing what my work is about and appreciating everything else. Um, what's your work about? What's my work about? Yeah, yeah. Normally, I don't like to ask people that question, but you so went there. I just so now that went I to, there. So I have, so I have to say, what are you? I mean, what what are you going for in a piece? What are what are the set goals? What do you want the audience to take away from it? Well, uh, the very biggest framework for what I do now, and this might sound totally, I think it's pretty much obvious to everyone else, but maybe not to me. It took me a long time to realize this. Is that I write instrumental music, and I'm very interested in instruments. I guess you could define that for me as acoustic instruments. I'm interested in sort of along with that also comes the idea of notation. Like I'm interested in this process of there's so many different ways of making music, but I am involved in this one where I write things down on paper and give that paper to someone else to realize, which in terms of the ways one can make music these days is a very old one and a very small one and kind of a strange one in a way. I mean, music literacy is dying or whatever and but this has been occurring to me in the last couple of years. Yes, this is really, I'm very interested in this chain of communication from me to the paper and the paper to the musician, musician to audience, and how that works and how I can... So many composers I know are fluent in computers and making music on computers, and I'm not. 
I also I also suck at that. Yeah, it's so, it's so, so, so embarrassing. So for a long time, I've, this was like as with a lot of things in my musical life, it was this source of a tremendous amount of guilt. Like, oh, I'm not doing cool computer things, and or I'm not like processing live instrumental sounds at all. But after a while, it finally occurred to me that this is actually something that I hold on to as kind of part of my identity. Like, um, I'm really just interested in people and the physical acts of playing their instruments and sort of I'm also very much interested in live performance and how notation kind of works hand in hand with the idea of a live performance and that it's different every time and it's interpretable like um to me the whole the whole classical tradition is about the reinterpretation of text that we have deemed worthy of reinterpreting for hundreds of years everyone has their own take on Bach that's kind of a beautiful thing to be able to create a text that perhaps generations or, or at least a few different people will, will be able to put their own stamp on. Do you think of it as a text or do you think of it as, how, what do you think of it? Do you think of it as the actual sounds first that you're imagining or do you think of it as a, or do you think of it as, as a, text a text that you're putting together? More and more it's about the text and it's about a text that can be realized and interpreted in multiple ways. So, yes, definitely, I do imagine sounds, but I, I feel like if I have, if you're into that idea of such sonic specificity uh, in sculpting the sounds, you might as well just do it on a computer. I mean, like, that's what a computer, I mean, I don't mean that categorically, but I mean, computer music is great for sculpting the sounds yourself. And if you're working with people who sculpt the sounds for themselves, like, let them be people and let them have more... I mean, this is just the trajectory of my work. I'm not, I'm by no means saying this categorically about everyone, but I'm just saying this is what interests me is that like, I'm trying to get them to be more like people, which is like interpretive, emotional beings who can make choices about this text they see in front of them, this notated page. So I guess I, I'm trying to provide a space in my music for interpretation. I'm trying to empower the performer, but also I'm trying to provide something that is multi-layered enough that they could read different things into it i mean there's there's degrees of flexibility within a depending on the text mm -hmm. you know and simply just the fact that what the performer is looking at is not an exact you know uh, replication of what they're supposed to be doing you know mm -hmm. if, like if they looked if you know if they're looking at a video of a live performance and that was their document then there'd be then they'd be like, oh, I had to do that exactly. Yeah. Maybe there'd be interpretation based on whatever the camera angle was or, you yeah. know, or how good the audio quality was. But if you're working on a text, no matter what you're doing, there's going to be, there's going to be a margin of interpretation. Is what you're saying is you're interested in opening that up more than you were before? Yes, like, absolutely. Okay, so, so before it was just, you imagine the sounds, you wrote down rhythms and the pitches of, of what you heard in your head and you expected them to replicate what you heard in your head and depending on your skill as a composer um, they either got it right or they got it wrong based on your notation of it but now you're more interested in putting them in the position where they have to make a choice about what they should or should not be playing yeah absolutely or how they should play it yeah or, you know how they should play it and and or what it means structurally you know a large part of I went to school for piano performance and I feel like so much of what I talked about in lessons with my teacher was not about technique necessarily but about like rhetoric and interpretation and having 
an opinion about a piece and clarifying that through your performance, projecting it to an audience. And yes, so basically it's me right now trying to open up that margin and trying to like, and just to sort of empower the players to, to make up the decisions for themselves. And I have found it, it seems to be a fairly clear trajectory that, I mean, a, a clear pattern for me that the wider the space I leave for them on any musical parameter, the more often it just works straight out of the box. Like, well, like, I mean, these are, you know, these are people who are, you know, trained professional musicians and they're bringing their own yeah. intuition and experience to the table, which, you know, especially if they're living in a place, New York means they have to have some chops, you know, yeah. and yeah. so they're bringing themselves to it. But do, do you feel like sometimes you're removing that Andrew stamp from it? If you're pulling back too much, yeah. if you know, because the extreme thing would be to give them, you know, a box with some pictures in it and say, Interpret. do, you know, do whatever you want. And then, you know, they play what they know is going to sound good, which may have nothing to do with you as a person. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's always, there's a balance there. It's a continuum. And I'm, you know, I'm not by any means. I mean, I still write notes on a staff generally. And so it's not. I'm not totally into, or haven't moved totally into this abstract graphic. Or even like world. a tablature type yeah, notation. And, or... and it is true. I mean, I do think a lot about the ways in which traditional notation sort of provides this framework for our musical imaginations when we're notating that we don't even really... It's like any language. Like, it, it structures the way you think. And so musical... Like, if, if, if you stick within traditional musical notation, like, like there are certain things... That are very easy and clear to do you know like for instance have people lined up like it's it's very good our system is very good for showing rhythmic um rhythmically lined up things but i think also our system of traditional notation kind of stinks when it comes to timbre like we've had to invent all these other things to layer on top of the notation to talk about timbre and and then consequently timbre has traditionally been like this added layer of frosting on top of your structural things, which are... Yeah. But it's interesting because because it, it is also impossible to attach timbre to a grid, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can try, but the variations, depending on the player, are going to be so... Are going to be, going to be so varied from performance to performance yeah. that it's impossible to get a consistency like you do with rhythms and pitches. It's true. Those are on an absolute scale right now. I mean... Um... Quarter note equals 60. Quarter note equals 60. Yeah. But Sulpant is not Sulpant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can't, you you know, you, you, you can't like look at, uh, you can't look at your watch and be like, no, 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 that's not Sulpant. Yeah. You know? But you can do quarter note equals 60 and say, you're too fast. We should you're have a Sulpantometer and we could stick it in front of a player and it would judge how Sulpant they're making their sound. You know, I, 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 I never thought of anything like that. But I've thought of ways of measuring just so you can have, consi- you know, you can be more consistent, mm-hmm. you know, between players. And I, you know, there's probably good ways to do it. You know, like people have tuners. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, people have metronomes. But the truth is that technology and ways of playing are so set at this point in no. what we do that it's, it's impossible to think that you're going to convince people to bring their overtone meter yeah, to their orchestra rehearsal. I yeah, and also that goes a little bit in contradiction to what you were saying before that of letting the players do their thing. You oh, know, yeah. like maybe it's Sewell Pont to them. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually totally okay with that, generally speaking. 
Yeah, this idea that, that timbre is a very personal thing, and every musician, even when they're playing normally, they all sound different, and this is something that they, in fact, cultivate and cling to as musicians, like, what is their sound? And I am all for, you know, finding those individual, having players sound unique and sound different and bring that that aspect of their personal sound in, into the music. And so, yes, generally speaking, I mean, a Solpanto meter would be nice, but I do... I'm selling Solpanto meters. All right. Out of the, yeah, out of the trunk of my car in, you could say in Brooklyn. In, in the internet. It's not going too well. It's not going too well. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to wait for the place to gentrify a little bit more before yeah, people start block. going with the Solpanto meters. I think I might be the only person on this block who would buy a Solpanto meter. Not even the other composers in this house. They'd be like, I don't need that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. Okay. They well. don't need that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in... What fascinates me is that people do have a very personal relationship with their instrument, and that when I ask them to do things, it is a very sort of, I am entering into what is already a very personal relationship, like them and their instrument, and they know how, I mean, they know so much more than I do, and not just technically about how the instrument works, but just like they have this sort of built-in relationship, and especially when my music goes in directions of either extreme writing or kind of strange, you know, or whatever, non-standard techniques, or lately what I've actually been kind of interested in, particularly with string players, is kind of elements of the physical nature of, of what it looks like and feels like to play and sort of the choreography of playing instruments and and how that can be expressive and used as a compositional tool and how that also complements the idea of live performance because, like it or not, we do look at these people when they're playing. You have to think of the mechanics of it because, you know... If you're not, you really run the risk of something looking ridiculous. Yeah. To get like a, to get like a sound, and if people are looking at it, it's going to ruin the sound if they look, you know, if they look weird. It pulls you out of the music because you're like, oh, look at that cellist. Where is he putting his bow? That's crazy. Yeah. And then yeah. all of a sudden you've forgotten what the musical gesture is. But I do think that that can be used to highlight and for dramatic or formal or expressive reasons, yeah. whatever. Like, you can use that kind of thing. Like... Lately, I've been super interested in, like, thinking about the length of the bow as a determiner for musical gestures. And so it's very much about a very specific kind of bow speed and then telling the players not how long the sound lasts, but, like, how much of the bow to use. Does that make oh, any sense? No, that, make, that makes, you know, that makes perfect sense to me, at least, you know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm also wondering, it's like, you're, you're talking about all these things and all these experiments you're... Uh, thinking about as far as performance goes, how much are you able to push this while still working with orchestras? <laughs> That's because because they are the most finicky of the mm, you know mm. of all performers, orchestra players. I am I'm definitely still figuring that one out, and I feel like it's it's my job right now, both at this point in my career and at this point me in the broader musical landscape of now. I feel like it's kind of my responsibility to push a little bit and because i do have work in the orchestral world which is kind of strange but i do and i desperately kind of want to see how far i can push them in terms of these these ideas and you know i've had some i don't know if it was two or three years ago i kind of said all right i'm not sure how much i've stuck to this but i was like i gave myself five years to be like do whatever and gave myself permission to fail in every single piece like 
I'm just going to fail. When was this? How many years ago was this? Oh, it was right at the end of my time at Yale. I was miserable at Yale, writing-wise. Yeah, I remember. I remember you being miserable. And part of the reason is because I just wanted so badly for everything to be perfect and to work. And I wanted, like, you know, I mean, it is... We're we're in this field because we want to speak to people. We want to say something. We want well, to communicate. Hopefully. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. people... Okay. People are in it for any number of reasons. I'm in this field because I want to speak to people and I want to say something. And it's very frustrating when you work, you know, so hard on a piece and then you hear it for the first time and you realize it doesn't say at all what you thought it was saying. But I finally was like, maybe when I'm 40, I'll be able to, like, control a piece to that level where I can, like, say what I want. But until then, I'm just going to try things out and I'm going to, like not be so hard on myself and they fail, which is, I mean, like, every piece has successes and fails in it. So I like to think of it this this way because I feel like I've had that, like, I, okay, I never gave myself five years, you know, but I think it's okay to try things out and fail and also be hard on yourself. I just think it's okay to be miserable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, no, I mean, of course, it's not okay to be miserable. You shouldn't walk around in a funk all day, and it's not a healthy state of mind, and you should you should do, you should should do do things to make yourself feel better about what you're doing. Yeah. But if you look at it as a long process, and this is just, and, you know, and, you know, this is just the time in your life where you're, you know, figuring shit out, then it's, a, then you can somehow be more at peace with yourself if you're, if you're not being as successful as you want to be when it comes to technically executing your ideas. Mm -hmm. Definitely a more peaceful feeling. And to be able to recognize a long-term trajectory like that and say, and then also to see it unfolding. And I'm not, I'm not even saying that I have this grand narrative, like, or one should have a grand narrative for yeah, themselves. No, but just, un you know, just realize that you're still working hard and you're going to, at some point find a way you know a way to do what you want to do and and all emotional funks end at some point i mean i think i'll probably have emotional funks for a while i mean they're just sort of a part of me but but there is a sense of like whenever when i used to get them they would be like be no way to see out of them and, and they were just all consuming and now at least i have a little bit better perspective i feel like even when i'm in one i'm like all right i'm in one now and uh, I'm going to do whatever, and at some point I'm going to get out of it, and it's going to be um, fine. So, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, it's hard to say how this all came about, but I just generally feel, yeah, sort of, uh, you yeah, know, kind of healthier creatively. But, I, yeah, a large part of it had to do with this sort of letting go of the need to have everything be perfect. But it's funny, like, when I used to listen to pieces, like especially the orchestra pieces or whatever, for the first time, I would... I would be so shocked on so many levels, but the servicey levels of like what's actually just like not working or technical things like that. I mean, there's always issues there, but I can deal with those. If there was more of this like, like hearing your work in that context is very clarifying for suddenly seeing all the, um, the decisions that you made, you had no idea you were making, you know? And oh like, yeah, absolutely. And like the yeah. kind of larger frames and it, it's very clarifying and you, you sort of, and that, to me, was the hardest part because that was always the most disturbing. Like, not just like, oh, why didn't I mark the trombone louder in that measure? It's more like, why on so many big levels did I... And then, yeah, but taking that those big questions and being able to feed them positively into the ongoing work, into the new work, is very tricky. 
it's very easy for me to like start asking those big why questions and then I back up and back up and back up and I'm so far away very quickly from any point of actually writing anything down that I just can't. And that's that's the trick for me in writing is like getting back to the spot where I can actually write music down. It's also it's also a little bit difficult to tell, especially with orchestral music, because you don't know you know, if it's if it's a solo player who you trust as an artist and you know is capable mm-hmm. and and is investing, you know, their time and effort into making what you want to work, mm-hmm. then I feel like that's a place where you can judge yourself. Yeah. But it's like it could also be that the trombone player has been playing in that orchestra for 30 years and all he wants to do is play Mahler and Brahms and standard repertoire stuff and all of a sudden there's this kid who's 30 years younger than him who's coming in and he's just not going to play three Fs, you know? And when orchestral music, it's like, am I doing this wrong or do you not give a shit? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so, so tricky with orchestras. Oh, I could talk for hours and hours and hours about that. And um, that's mainly who you work with now. Yeah, I know. So and, and, how are, so and it must is, be even more difficult for you to like uh, judge yourself and move on unless you're with an orchestra who you're like, okay, every like that's what that's what the piece is, and it's not you know, know. it's not people not caring. And you get so few experiences like that, and when you do, you realize, yeah, like I, you know, like for instance, when I know Ted and various people have gone to that Minnesota orchestra reading thing, which I did too, and my experience was is that my piece sounded. Everyone's piece actually sounded fantastic because they sold them. That orchestra was committed to those pieces for that very short period of time, and it was like they made anything work. And 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 um, and then you go to like a like New Music New Haven orchestra concert, and well, I mean, because, nothing works. Yeah, because at Minnesota, because of Aaron J. Kernis, to mm-hmm. give you know to like give him credit, mm-hmm. or at least the people who decided to bring him in, plus him being there. Yeah, yeah. You know that new music stuff is like you know gets a lot of attention, and it's part of their identity. And I think they're really proud of it. I know they're really proud of it. Yeah. So, be- so because of that, you know everybody in there is going to be dedicated. Or yeah. if someone there isn't into it, you know they're still going to try hard because if they're the only person who doesn't give a shit then everybody else is going you know there is a mob mentality to an orchestra yeah you know i'll say i have many things to say on this subject but one is that like for me it's been a long time coming to terms with like why i write orchestral music and what is it that i find interesting about this medium and i mean because there are so many sort of negative strange little aspects to it and especially as a person like i am i'm very interested in the interpersonal aspects of music making like we talked about earlier like how i interface and the fact that i'm writing music for the human beings and i'm trying to open up that space for them to be human beings and of course the whole orchestra mentality especially with new music is like is actually like let's not be human beings we're gonna just do exactly what we're told oh yeah it's caught i mean you know or or it doesn't work yeah you know and but you know to me what makes an orchestra amazing now i mean a hundred Or 200 years ago, if you were interested in making any kind of creative work with sounds, like you aspired to write for a group like an orchestra, because that's the only kind of way you could make sounds. It was the most... Wait, say that again? I mean, it was like the most sonically complex organism out there. Like Yes, 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 yes. And now we have so many other ways of making music. Sonically complex music. Yes. Yeah. Like you can do fabulous mind-blowing things on a computer with the speakers, you know, 400 speakers that go all the way around the room. Yes. And they can make sounds dance in front of you. 
and they can like make them, you know, circle your head and they can pinpoint them geographically and they can do all these fantastic things. And they, you know, so from that perspective, if you're, if you're just interested in sound, the orchestra is very, very limited. Like it's a highly, highly conventionalized, formalized medium, like, and like, it doesn't respond well to being torn apart. That's more than just the mentality of the players. That's also just the sonic reality yeah. of a hundred people on stage. On one stage. Yeah, and it's yeah like... doing doing one thing in a big, you know, in a big hall. Mm-hmm. That's um, People are sitting be... in that hall. You know, it's like there's so much about the experience is fixed. And you kind of have to be okay with and take advantage of, uh, view those elements of the form that are fixed as, as and like, what can I do with these? As opposed to like, Ugh, this medium is so lame and old-fashioned. But what I'm trying to get at here is that, to me, what is amazing now is that that is, that is 90 people on stage making sounds. And that, like, if you can somehow harness the human energy and potential that's up there on stage, it can be amazing. Like, when you see an orchestra like the Berlin Phil playing Mahler, even Brahms, someone like that, you see like and feel the emotional release of 90 people in one collective statement. It's amazing just in terms of I feel like like the emotive expressive power of that many people. And to me that's what an orchestra has to offer, you know, now today which is still unique and still powerful. And so this but but anytime you get like I I can't tell you how many dreadfully boring new music for orchestra concerts I've been to where there isn't a single ounce of emotion on stage and they like uh they're not communicating anything which is i'm not trying to place the blame on them or the composers but but it's like the very worst of the medium i feel like it's... Oh, oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> i've been to those i've been to those actually i think yeah i went to no an ultrashaw concert were we of, at that same yeah one? yeah yeah we, we, we were at the same one and it was just the, the only discussion i could have with anybody who i went with afterwards was trying to explain to them the problems of new music yeah because that's all there was at this concert. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was just yeah. like yeah. one big problem, and and like, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was a that was kind of a devastating concert because it's like, what what are we doing here? Like, in writing in this medium, and what is what is wrong on so many levels? And even you know, I felt the same thing. I have to say, even on tape here, this uh, Sonic concert. You know, they have the Sonic Festival here in New York, and, and my piece was on this orchestra concert. It was a nice concert. It was in a, you know, it was free, and there was a nice crowd. Uh, but I just I kept being struck by because it was all new pieces by youngish composers like the similar traps that we all fall into. But just in like the on a broader level, like um, why is it that these works don't feel like they're communicating much through the medium of the orchestra? And like I'm not getting a strong feeling from from the orchestra at all as people. You know, sometimes I think in, in sometimes in my orchestra music I, I want to write the word emote with an exclamation point <laughs> it, it doesn't you know it doesn't matter how many exclamation points you put on there they're not gonna emote if they're not feeling it you i know. know they're either gonna do it or not you know so it's i feel like here's the trick is like you have to convince them it's all no, finally so a couple of things have turned me back on to the orchestra one is this notion of like if i can figure out how to harness that human energy release thing that you hear in 
all sorts of rep, standard rep. And granted, that's very difficult to do because that's music they've grown up with. You know, they all have emotional relationships with it, et cetera, et cetera. But if I can get that somehow, that would be amazing. And the second thing that I really love is that orchestra music is in a way, it's kind of like, I don't know if I want to call it the sort of a very crystallized, not crystallized, a very distilled version of this composer notation performer relationship. Like, really, that's all there is, and I just have my notation to communicate with them, and they are going to do exactly what they see. It's all about notation. and It's all about notation because it's really hard for so many people to come up with a personal consensus about you yeah, as a person. All they know about me, all they have in lieu of a personal relationship with me, is what they see on the page. The order of dots. The order of the dots. Um, you know, how clearly they're laid out and, you know, all of, all of these, like, stupid things that composers worry about in terms of the nitpickiness of the notation. And, and then, of course, they judge how they how you wrote for their instrument and, and they that's all they have. But in a way, that's kind of also, like, a very beautiful and pure thing. Like, they're not clouded by any notions of who Andrew Norman is and what he's about. They just have their one little part. And it's all, I mean, like... I often forget this, too. I mean, I used to play in orchestras, but I played in, this, in the viola section, which is even a very different experience than, like, playing in the brass section or, or the winds or percussion or anything. And the, the, the terms of the lack of, of context that these people have for what they're doing, even in the moment, like, I guess, like, sitting in the front of an orchestra, you kind of get the whole sound of the orchestra coming at you and you fit your little self in. But, like, what I realize is when sitting at the back in a rehearsal, it's, like, really... Those guys can't hear anything back there. They're just playing exactly what they see. And and that, to me, is kind of, you know, not such a... I mean, I w- it's not such a communal uh, thing. Yeah, exactly. Actually. Like yeah. They're, I mean, because they're really just, just... They see a beat, and they play what's written. And, and they have no idea, really, how the sound is blending out in the hall. They, they just do it. And like it or not, music tends to fall... Like, the the stuff they see on the page, it's either, like, sort of into something familiar to them or it's not, you know? And it would have been nice if orchestras had sort of kept up with the pace of composers and their little notational changes of the last 50 years. And actually, a lot of all these experiments that composers do yeah. work a lot better for, you know, smaller, uh, you know, smaller ensembles where you, where, you know, you can pay attention to the detail that, the crazy detail that you notated. Yeah. And I guess that's just not as good for orchestral. Mm-hmm. You know, the economics of an orchestra is, is staggering. I know. You know. And it's, um, you know, not, not only the money that the composers get paid, but just the fact that, you know, another hour of, another hour of rehearsal for a string quartet is, Okay, let me let me call my significant other and tell them I'm going to be late. You know, yeah. And uh, an extra hour of rehearsal for an orchestra is like, hey, that's another hundred fifty thousand dollars. You know, you're going to spend to like make this one thing. Oh, I'm sorry, to it's make okay. this one thing work. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And um, it is. Yeah, it, it's one of the reasons why there's there's like so much conservative orchestral music being written, which is kind of sad to me. But the medium, it's sort of. It lends itself to these kind of conservative, safe and familiar things. And, you know, I feel like, I do feel like, like, one of the things, though, that I, I, I discovered or sort of figured out, like, with Unstuck and things like this piece, this orchestra piece I wrote, like, four years ago and have continuously re- rewritten since, is, like, you know, if you take ideas that in, in themselves are kind of, like, familiar 
in one way or another and easily processable by these people who have no context for what they're doing like you know like a like an e minor arpeggio or something you you can take that you can use it but just like there are so many ways in which you could like you know take a familiar object and defamiliarize it by putting it in some other context yeah and that's largely i feel like one of the one of the paths forward in my work orchestrally is like taking any sort of musical idea that has some element of familiar that a player could grab onto and then trying to make that familiar fresh again by any number of methods. But as opposed, and so I, I feel like that's maybe one of the reasons why my work doesn't come from what I would call a kind of Euro modernist base. Like, cause I feel like that base, that starting point is a very different one. You know, I mean, a lot of my work is like thinking about those, those kind of, they are kind of tropes in a way. And, and but like kind of like unstuck has kind of tropey gestures from a whole wide variety of different things. I would think like it's got some scratch tone tropes, which I like. For me, this is interesting to be in dialogue with the fact that whatever material you're using has some sort of history unto itself. And the E minor arpeggio means something has this rich history and like has all sorts of allusions and historical references, as does a Lachmanian scratch tone. Like they're all rich. But they, like, they're all, none of them are a blank slate.
Like I'm interested in this idea actually of of kind of actual like wit and comedy in music and like if you get people in the palm of your hand somehow, like either through kind of timing or whatever whatever you're doing, like one great example of this for me is like like the sort of whip up a big climax, which is a tired gesture now. But if you can whip up a big moving like direction oriented climax. What you're doing is you're getting your audience, like, you're you're getting them in the palm of your hand, and you're kind of letting their their guard goes down instantly, and it's like no longer is it like they they have to work hard to get into your music because like they're just sucked into it. Yeah, in order, yeah, in in order to in order to pull the rug out from under somebody, yeah, you have to convince them to stand on the rug. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. And if, no. not, and, and if not, they're just standing on the floor and then you're taking this rug and, going, and yeah, Woo! yeah, yeah. And you're just, you know, pulling a rug across the room yeah. and they're staying in one place. No, absolutely. Yeah. And this is a, a super important thing to me now. And, you know, there's other ways of saying it. Like one of my friends says, you have to get the audience with you before you, and like, yeah. And, or, and I, I feel like there is, there is a sense in a lot of contemporary music, it's like, you need to come to saying to the audience, audience, you need to, to come. It is your job to do all the work to follow me. Or like, like I'm going to put my object here up on stage yeah. and you have yeah. to do everything. And, and like, I'm kind of bored with that. And actually it doesn't do anything for me, but like, well, it doesn't work. People aren't going to respond no, to no. that, you know, and it's, just yeah, feel like cond- don't condescend to people like that. I mean, you know? I've been to so many concerts and and quite a few in Germany actually that felt like they were like it was more like a philosophy lecture or something. It was it was um it was medicine. It was it was something, and uh, that's fine. I mean, there's a, there's something you, there are things that can only be said that way, and there are things that always should be said that way. But it's not what I'm interested in right now, and it's like this idea of making the listener vulnerable and or wrapping the people. I mean, because the other aspect of my music, of course, is that I'm interested in this idea of communal listening, live performance, communal listening. It's a very powerful thing. Not only is it powerful to have 90 people playing Mahler and emoting their hearts out, it's a really powerful thing to sit there with 2,000 people experiencing this journey through Mahler's symphony. Yeah, everybody's focusing on the same thing. Yeah, but, you know, it's this weird combination of it's incredibly internal. We all hear differently. We're not talking or communicating in any way with each other, but so it's very much in our own heads, but it's still incredibly communal. And I, you know, I, it'll take me the rest of my life to wrap my brain around how very special that is. But all this to say, like, what, what is amazing? A lot of my thinking is what is amazing about the concert experience now? What, and what can I do to tap into that very special kind of energy? that's there and yeah as we were saying this idea of like not avoiding these things that some composers avoid because it's like i feel like it's a very common trope to be like oh we can't do these very formally obvious things or like at its most extreme we can't have form at all (laughs) like because it's too obvious or something or or i mean they always have a form but it's it's so layered and hidden that you know, no one's no one's long term intuition is going to be able to follow yeah. it as a narrative. You know, that's what I always think is that you know it's like I'm going to reinvent the wheel, but there's a reason why the wheel is round. Yeah, because, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. These kind of kind of like um like universal narratives and things like this, which is very interesting to me because when I talk to my various novelist friends, who as a bunch they are much they seem much more 
you know, like, okay with this idea that they're all sort of telling the same stories over and over and over again. And, but they also are very much into sort of their, their relationship with their readers and the audience and how the, their audience is taking it from moment to moment and how they're sort of sculpting the emotional, intellectual experience of these people. This is, whereas like my conceptual artist friends, none of that, like would never ever talk about like trying to prescribe an experience. One of the main things that orchestras have going for them is this idea that it is a special, live, unreplicatable experience. Like, this is the only reason to go hear a standard rep concert live, is like, because you're not going to get that experience anywhere else. You, you think you think they're doomed? No! I mean, certainly it's going to change, whatever. This is what I come down to, is like, it's really fun to play instruments. People are always going to play instruments. Yeah. It's satisfying and fun. And like, it's satisfying to make music in a group. And whether or not, you know, proliferated orchestras that give two-hour concerts of 200-year-old music is going to last, I have no idea, and I almost don't even really care. But I do believe that, I mean, in a way, like, when I write for instruments, I'm also betting on old technology. Like, I'm not... And one of the reasons I don't write computer music is that that medium changes constantly. <laughs> it changes constantly. It's exhausting. I w- actually, I want to get I want to get back to that. Is that you said you felt that for a while you had this hang up that that's not what you were doing, and therefore you weren't like current enough or cool enough or yeah, like I wasn't legitimate yeah. as a creator because I wasn't interested in the newest technology. But no, I I felt uh, sort of illegitimate for a while, and you know it's hard to say where that comes from, other than like it's in my nature as a person to feel sort of illegitimate and not always feel like I'm sort of on the wrong track. But you know I've had people say to question whether or not someone can truly be a composer without being interested in these more contemporary current ways of of making sound and and you know that definitely threw me off for a while but i'm okay with it now yeah i mean what you know what made you okay with it now what did you accept about yourself i mean i think it was more like i it's like when you're in a the i don't want to get into like the lingo of my therapist but like from Yale. I had therapy at Yale. It was very helpful. Uh, was it good? Yeah. I could have used it. Yeah, no. And it, and, and it ranged on a number of topics, but a lot of it was about creativity. Did your Yale plan pay for that? Totally. Really? It's one of the reasons I went there. It's like free healthcare, free therapy, free gym membership. That's... Uh, and Aaron um, Curtis and Martin Preston. Yeah, but, okay. <laughs> and Ingram Martin. Those, those were the last on the, last on the list, the by last the way. Three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure... I'm sure Bresnik would appreciate being the very last, like, three after gym. <laughs> no, my, my therapy was great. But what was I saying? It was something about... Accepting. Yeah, accepting. accepting but being able to, like... It's just a, like it was like a, a switch of a switch of seeing what I did for what it was and not for what it wasn't. And, like, I was so good about seeing what it wasn't. Like, I could see so clearly everything that my music was not. And it was, like, mind-blowing how much it wasn't. Yeah, and, and you're like, I can't deal with it. It's it's not so many things. It's not all all the cool things that it should be. It's just no, not. No, it's not. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not what the, quote, cool kids are doing or who you thought the cool kids were. Oh, know? yeah, totally. Yeah. And, I but, mean, of course, want... I have this. I also have a, a, a remarkable ability to think everyone is cool but me. And this is just a big personality problem of mine that I had for a really long time is that, like, I could just see every way in which my music and, like, these big frames in which I was creating were just all wrong. And then finally, if I could just look at them and say, well, this is what I've got. I might as well make something of it and like do what is interesting here and accept the fact that like my experience 
my personality, my whatever has, has sort of left me where I am, sort of has made me what I am. And like, I can use that as a starting point or I can just be so freaked out about it that I won't ever write anything ever again. And so I was like, I, I chose the, uh, the former. I'm not entirely sure how I did that, but I did. And, and then it was like, and then it was okay. And then that's when I really actually started to be able to explore these ideas of what does it mean to write only for instruments? What does it mean to write for a, like, for instance, I used to feel horribly inadequate because my music was performed in concert halls and not in galleries or clubs or whatever. And then once I was able to say, you know what, my music is performed in concert halls. What does that mean? Then I was able to like, A, accept it and B, like play with it. I think that's also a part of being in your 20s is that in general, you're, you have these ego, you have, you know, un, unobtainable expectations of yourself. I still feel like I have that. And it's, it, and it's often a source of misery and delusion. It all gets but better when you turn 30. Oh, really? I, I, the sky I, I, will open up. Yeah. Angels yeah. will start singing in your is that, ears. Is that, is that true in some way? These first few years of my 30s have been very, can, can, much better. I mean, you seem better. I mean, no offense. Like, I'm, I'm big, but when we first met, when basically at a school you went for, because you'd get free therapy, like, you were definitely, you, you know, you were definitely you know, paralyzed. No. Yeah. So. Um, so you're a lot less. You're you're a lot less paralyzed now, and you seem more comfortable with yourself, what you do, why you're doing it, and who you are. Thank you, Dan. Are you happier now? You're oh, happier? I'm happier now. Yes, yeah. I'm much happier now. Are you happy? I'm happy. That's good. I'm a, I'm very happy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you, you know, the, the, which isn't to say that I'm not ever confused. I think confusion will always be a part of my process, but I have a slightly more set frame in which I can sort of process that now. So yeah, for me, turning thirty, and and also yeah, this idea of letting go of the need to write perfect pieces and be the idea that every piece I write had to be somehow like definitive or like this is, you know, there's this pressure when you're young of being, and you know, it goes back to the publicity thing we started off talking about, like, who is Andrew Norman? He used to define himself in one 10 minute orchestra piece. And like, and so every piece got saddled with this, like these kinds of burdens of self-definition, which I'm kind of like, don't feel so much anymore. And part, part of that is, it is nice that, like, I know that this next piece I write is not going to be the last piece I write. Like, I'm going to write another one. Even if no one asks me, I'm going to write another one. Like, yeah. And just to see it as not, like, the end unto itself, but it's just one piece in a journey of pieces and me exploring issues that that could last for decades. So that is a very that's, yeah, thing. Yeah, that, that's important to do. It's also important to do because... If you think every piece is a piece onto itself, then you look back on old pieces and you just get squeamish. Yeah. You know, you're just like, oh, God, I can't believe that. Because it's what be, – not because the piece isn't necessarily good, because you look back and think about you, – you look back and you realize what you were thinking at the time when you were writing it, yeah. which was this is going to be you – know, this is going to be the piece, yeah. you know, the defining yeah. piece. Exactly. And, it's, and it, you know, it's so not that. But if you look at it as part of you – know, as a linear thing of – for you to get to point A to point B, which could still be miles down the road, yeah. then then it's a lot more easier to be at peace with yourself. Yeah, which brings up one, one thing I will say, which is that when I look at kind of mid-career composers so, or late older composers, especially people who've been like on this kind of commission track for a long time, I tend to see two kinds of people. The vast majority of them 
kind of bitter and like and then there's a few of them who who seem still genuinely engaged in what they're doing and the difference that i see in those composers is that they have they have mapped out a sort of creative trajectory for themselves and it's not merely just moving from one commission to the next and fulfilling but if they can i mean may, maybe not mapped out but they understand that then they, they understand that what they're doing is going to take them to another place yes. Ra- rather rather than saying this is my thing i nailed it down yeah and i got to do it over and over again because exactly. that's what people want from me yeah exactly and the people who seem to be genuinely excited by their own creative progress and like genuinely it, i mean and it seems like kind of a no-brainer that if you make work you should be like genuinely interested in what you're doing but but the people yeah they tend to fall into two pretty distinct camps for me and um it's something i also have learned quite a bit from my visual artist friends because they tend to be very good at articulating the sort of journey that they're on from from one work to another and i've heard so many composers talk where it's like and then the St. Louis Orchestra asked me to write a piccolo concerto, so I wrote a piccolo concerto. And then, the, you know, the Oklahoma City Symphony asked me to write a 10-minute concert piece, so I wrote a 10-minute concert piece. And that's, like, the extent of what they can say about their work. And, and, and it's no surprise to me that those people seem to be the most burnt out and miserable. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe they could have gone to therapy while they were in grad school. If or only. Something. Yeah, if only. <laughs> if only yeah, everyone should go to That's therapy. great. I mean, you seem you seem happier now. I mean, for a long time in my 20s, I also, I kept, again, I guess I'm one to set these bizarre, like, multi-year goals for myself. Five years. <laughs> I kind of, like, yeah, every couple of years I'd be like, if it doesn't improve in two years or whatever, I'm just gonna quit. I'm just like, and I quit several times in my 20s. Like, I quit composing for two years in my undergrad. Um, I just didn't write anything, and then there's a period when I was about 25 when I basically wrote one four-minute piece in a year, and that was all I did because I couldn't do anything else. And um, every few years, it would be like I would seriously consider quitting, and then I'd be like, okay, just. And so I was. I there was a time in my 20s. It was a very surreal and bizarre experience for me because it was like there was a tremendous amount of of positive feedback from my work from large institutions. You know, like. There was a lot of institutional interest in my work. But as I was back then, that in itself was, like, to me, validation of my own lack of worth in a way. Like, whoa, so many big institutions like what I'm doing. I must be doing something wrong. Like, yeah, I think a lot of people think that. Like, you know. I must not be transgressive enough or I must not be pushing enough buttons if, like, if so many of these large conservative institutions put their stamp of approval on me. And that was, that was like, that was a huge burden for me. And I had to finally let go of that. As I was saying to someone last night, I have a position now, which is kind of unique or at least a little bit rare. Like I have work in the orchestral world and it's kind of like, I have a unique position from which I can kind of push on them. And I can explore these things with a certain amount of security that I'll still have something like another one will come. I mean, eventually if I push too much, you know, I'll still figure that one out. But like, but having those kinds of that institutional stamp, which I thought of for so long as a kind like of great. Burden, na- yeah. Now I'm on the inside. Now I'm on the now inside. Now I can blow it up or, or like, not blow it up. Cause then I'll get kicked out and they'll never let me in again. Yeah, Cause I blew like, up the place. Push it. But, um, you know, like, you know, but I can, you know, I, you know, uh, you know, I can, I can aggravate people enough. And because if it's a large institution, there's enough people, you know, involved in paying attention to it, 
that it's a position of I'm, I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't say power but you know it's a, it's a position of influence no, and be, and yeah. you know and if you're a person in that position of influence and and your main goal is not just to simply remain in that position then um, you're you're one of the good guys I've been given some amazing opportunities in my career and I'm not going to squander them I'm going to try to make work that's very personal and that just, you know, it's like explores these issues that I'm interested in. And that also somehow I feel like does my duty to push. And I might not always be like into this idea of pushing, but right now I sort of am. So I'm going to go with it. That's great. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Sure. All right. Thanks, Andrew. You're welcome, Dan. <laughs>